What is the love of God? If you had to define what God's love is, what would you say? How would you describe it to someone who asks you? What is the love of God? There's a lot of ideas within the church, outside the church, of what the love of God really is. A lot of people have different ideas about what God's love really means. Perhaps you think perhaps God's love just means that God has good, good vibes towards you. Right? Like he just a good general disposition of God towards you. You kind of feel like God kind of likes you. Is that what God's love is? What does God's look like, love look like? How do, we, how do we even get the love of a divine being? What do we need to do in order to obtain this love? What kind of love do we need to have back for him? Do we need to do anything? How do we receive this love? There's lots of questions about what the love of God is and means in our life. And sometimes words can fail to really grasp it and understand and explain the depth of what God's love looks like. But people will often say, a picture is worth a thousand words. In the Bible, we have a lot of words about God, a lot of words about his love, but he also gives us pictures. Not like an actual image, per se, but he gives us a visual, an illustration, a real-life scenario that he means to show us what his love is really like. Because sometimes just words can't explain it, but when we see it in action, that helps us really grasp what the love of God looks like. And Hosea chapter 3 uh, is where we'll be, and that's what we're going to see between the, the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer. We're going to see God command Hosea to act out certain things that show his people Israel what God's love is really like. So what we're going to do is we're going to look through the text, we'll read through it, and then we're going to see three characteristics of God's love. Three characteristics of his love. So Hosea chapter 3, if you have your Bible open, uh, we'll be reading the whole chapter. It's only five verses though, so that's a win. Here we go. Hosea chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, that's to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, so you see it's to show how he loves the children of Israel, though, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a letek of barley and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You, you shall not play the whore, nor belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come to in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. That's God's word to us this morning. So like I said, three characteristics. Three characteristics of God's love that we see in the passage. The first one is this. That God's love is persistent. That God's love is persistent. That is, God keeps loving us even when we love other things. Uh, if you're not been with us the last few weeks to kind of catch up to speed where we are. We have uh, Hosea, 
who is a prophet, he's been commanded by God to go and marry uh, a, a woman, a wife of whoredom is what it says, uh, a woman who's probably a local prostitute. Uh, he marries her, but she has been unfaithful to him, perhaps multiple times. And we see now in our passage that she, it says she's loved by another man. So here he's had a wife, they've had three kids together, and now she's left him for another man. And at, it's at this point that God goes and tells Hosea, go again. Go again and love this woman. Uh, love someone who's broken the marriage vows. Love someone who's betrayed you. This is not what we normally do. When we're in a relationship with someone, whether that's a romantic relationship or, or just a friendship, uh, when somebody uh, hurts us, when somebody doesn't give us what we want from the relationship, what do we usually do? We usually just move on. We're kind of like, okay, if you don't want it, fine. I'll just, work, I'll just go my own way, right? We say to people, you know what, this person, they're just toxic. They're just toxic, I'm moving on. But that's not what God commands Hosea. That's not what God is like with his people. We have, to, we have to get in our minds how crazy this would have been for Hosea to, to go again to Gomer, to bring her to be his wife again. Uh, this is the woman who's cheated on him. The woman who, when he married her, everybody was like, what are you doing, Hosea? You know who this woman is? You know what she's like? You know she's just going to cheat on you. You know she's going to leave you, right? And they were all right. They were. They'd all be like, Hosea, we told you. Look at what happened. And now you're left with the kids. You're raising them. You're trying to figure everything out. What are you doing? You're going to go back to her? Or it'd be one thing for him to just kind of move on with his life. That'd be difficult. It'd be hard to kind of say, okay, you know what? I'm not going to get angry. I'm just going to move on. I'm going to take care and kind of make the best life that we can as a family now. But it's not just that. He's saying, no, no, no. It's not just I'm moving on. The, the person who's hurt me, I, I want to forgive them. And I want to bring them back into our family. Uh, even though he could have rightfully given her a divorce. He could have moved on. He could have been like, yep, this is over. It was a biblical reason for divorce. She's cheated on him. Move on. It's not sin. No one would have thought less of him if he'd just done that. But yet that's not what God commands him to do. Go again and love her. The crazy thing is she doesn't even seem to want it. It's not like Gomer is there at his doorstep being like, ah, oh, I made a mistake. I'm sorry, I went and did this. Would you please take me back, Hosea? Please, let me back. We have no indication that she is at all wanting to come back, that she's at all repentant for what she's done. She seems quite happy with it, actually. In fact, when uh, God compares what she's done to what Israel's done, it, it says that Israel has turned to other gods and they love cakes of raisins. And those cakes of raisins, that's kind of probably a reference to some kind of uh, thing that was used in pagan worship. And so the idea is that the Israelites, they, they love what they're doing. They've turned to other gods and they love it. They're, they're into it. They're not, they're not repentant. They're not like, oh, I should be back. No, they, they're happy. They're satisfied. That's where Gomer's at. And for Hosea, there, there's be a lot of disgrace and shame that would be brought to him in this time. Uh, not just because of who he married. We have to remember this is an honor-shame culture. 
to marry someone like her would have brought great shame to him and his family. But then she goes and cheats on him even more so. But then, to go back to the woman who's brought shame and disgrace to your name and your family, and to invite her back into your family? Unthinkable. It's crazy. In fact, it's led some commentators to say, you know what, Hosea couldn't have actually done this in that time. It might have just been a vision or just something God gave him. There's no way he could have actually gone and done that in the time. It was so unthinkable. But that's exactly the point. The point that God is trying to make is, I have gone and done the unthinkable. I have gone and brought shame and disgrace on my name for the sake of my people Israel, so that they can be restored to me. I've gone and loved this disobedient, faithless people. Why? So that they can know me again. All throughout the Bible, we see that this is what happens with the people of Israel. God uh, creates a people as they come out of Egypt, out of slavery. He brings them to Mount Sinai. They see his glory. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And then what happens next? Like a, a day or two later, they're like worshiping a golden calf. They've already turned their back. And all throughout history, they continue to turn to other gods. He keeps pursuing them. He keeps persistently loving them, going after them, even though they they keep turning away time after time after time. But God's love is persistent. Uh, The the word that the the Bible uses to describe this type of love of God is his hesed love. It's the Hebrew word. It means we we would translate it his steadfast love. His love that that remains, that stays despite our disobedience, despite Israel's sin. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote a children's book. It's out there in the bookshelf called The Jesus Storybook Bible. Some of you maybe read it to your kids. And in that, she describes the steadfast love of God this way. She describes it as the never-ending, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The always and forever love. Never giving up. Never ending. That's the kind of love that God has for his people, Israel. And the great news is that, that he does not just have that for the people of Israel, but through Christ, he has extended that to all people who have faith in Christ. That's the type of love he has for, for all of us. Uh, Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shows us love while we're sinful to him. He doesn't wait for us to clean up our act. He goes and pursues us, persisting in love. Because the truth is that it's not just that Israel was like Gomer. They were. The truth is that we are all like Gomer. All of us, especially here, if if you call yourself a Christian, you've said, Jesus is my Lord. He's my master. He's the one I follow. We've been brought into covenant relationship with God. And what do we do? We sin. Again. And again. And again. We commit spiritual prostitution. Instead of loving the one true God the way that we ought, we go and love other things. We love how people think of us. We we love our careers. We love our children. We love our wives more than the things that we love God. We're very, as the hymn says, prone to wander. Just like Gomer. We, we go back and we, we love it. We love the sin. 
But in those moments, God's love is persistent. He doesn't just say, you know what? I'm done with you. He could rightly just end the relationship. He could say, I'm moving on. But he doesn't. He says, no, I'm, I'm pursuing you. I'm not waiting till you, you clean up your act and come to me. I'm coming after you. I want you to know I still love you and care for you. My love isn't contingent on what you've done. My love is steadfast. There's some of us that really need to hear this. Because for some of us, we feel like we have reached the end of God's rope. We've gone too far. How could God still love us after whatever we've done? Again and again and again. Really? God still wants me back? But I, I keep walking away from him. Yeah, but his love is persistent. God doesn't want you back because of you. He wants you back to show his love. He wants it back for you. He wants you to know that love. For those of us who feel we've sinned ourselves out of relationship with God, know that God's love is persistent. He keeps coming after us. He keeps loving us in spite of us turning away from him. So that's the first thing that we see here in this passage, that God's love is persistent. Uh, the second thing we see is that God's love is sacrificial. God's love is sacrificial. That is that there's going to be a great cost to restore relationship. Now we see that uh, played out between Hosea and Gomer in verse, verses 2 and 3. So look there with me. So it says, I, uh, Hosea, bought her <clears throat> for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a latek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. Now you shall not play the whore, you shall not belong to another man, so will I also be to you. So we see at this point that, that Gomer ha seems to be some kind of slave. We don't know how this happened or, or what exactly went on. We don't know if she just kind of accumulated debt uh, or she had to sell herself into slavery. We don't know if the men that she was with took advantage of her. We don't know. But she seems to be in this situation that in order for Hosea to have her back as his wife, he needs to buy her. He has to pay a price in order to actually get her back, which is crazy. Like, think, so how hard it is if someone you knew and love cheated on you, betrayed you, it would be so hard to try and take them back, right? Just to forgive them and bring them back into your family. But then to say, in order to do that, you need to pay? You need to pay to do that? That's crazy. Who's going to do that? Or like that, that's what Hosea is being faced with. He's got to pay an incredible cost just to have this woman who's betrayed him back. For him to get her back, it, it, what's happening here is the word we would use is he's redeeming her. The word redeem just means to buy back. He's going, something that was his, she's his wife, he's having to buy her back. He's redeeming and, and we see that this is actually probably a really big sacrifice for Hosea. You see that he pays with 15 shekels uh, and a bunch of barley. There's about 330 liters probably of barley, which is a decent amount. It's not nothing. It's not a huge amount. But the fact that uh, Hosea had to pay with uh, not just money 
shows us that he probably didn't have enough cash just to buy her. Right? The usual price of a slave would be like 30 shekels of silver. Right? So it seems like he's got some of the money, but then he's got to kind of scrounge around and try and find the rest of it so he can actually buy her back. It'd be like if, if uh, you needed to pay bail for somebody and you're kind of like, I got half the money, but then you got to go and you got to like bring your TV and your car and like try and just scrape together whatever you can to actually buy this person back. That's what Hosea has to do. It's a great cost to himself. It was probably most of what he had for her. And the point of this, God is trying to show, is that there was great cost to buy Gomer back in the same way that, that his people. Gomer was a slave. His people were slaves that needed to be bought back. The, the problem is that the, the Israelites, they didn't really think of themselves as slaves. Uh, in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking with the Jewish people. And... Um, and you'll see that, that they're kind of offended by the idea that Jesus would think that they need to be set free, that they're somehow in slavery. Look at the text here. John chapter 8, uh, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, he said, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they're like, whoa, what? Free from what? We don't need to be free from anything. They answered him, we're the offspring of Abraham. Never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free. And Jesus points to where their true slavery lies. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Or slave to sin. So it was not just the Jewish people, though, that were enslaved to sin because all of us practice sin. This includes all of us. We are all slaves. Slaves to sin. Why? Because we always obey it. It seems to be our master. It seems to be the thing that our heart naturally wants to follow. Sin has this grip, this hold on our heart that we can't seem to break. We, we keep going after it. And in fact, we kind of love it. Just like Gomer just like the Israelites? Why do we keep going after the same sin time after time after time? Because we like it. Because it's actually what we love deep down. We're a slave. We're, we're caught. We've got chained onto the sin. But we're also slaves because the sin, every time we do it, we're accumulating a debt. It's kind of like we got a credit card and we're just, every time we sin, we're just swiping the card and we never even think of paying the card off. We're just swiping. And there is a debt of justice that is accumulating because God is a just God and our sin is not just a sin against one another but against him. And there is justice that needs to be held for those of us who have done that. So there's a cost. We're, we're, we're slaves and somebody needs to buy us back. And so the good news of the gospel is that's what Jesus did. He came and he didn't just pay 15 shekels of silver. He didn't just pay with most of what he had. He paid with him very self. He came and gave everything. He comes and he buys us back. He redeems us by dying on the cross, taking the punishment, the wrath of God, the justice that we all deserve. He takes that on himself so that we can be forgiven. 
at an incredibly costly price. It's, it's not just anyone who died. It's, it's God himself who comes and dies. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this. It says, uh, you were ransomed. The word means redeemed. You're ransomed, redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things, silver, gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There's a huge cost that was paid to us. A huge cost. So the question is, why, 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 why does God do that? Well, for one, it shows us how much he loves us, really. It shows the depth of his love. Right? You, you love, in many ways, is marked by what you're willing to give up. It's marked by what you're willing to give up. Like, how do you know if somebody's love for you is true? They can say, I love you, but talk is cheap. What, what, what comes down, when, what does their, their talk say when, when action comes? Do they show that they love you by their actions, by their willingness to sacrifice, to give, to sacrifice of themselves for you? Uh, we, we see this kind of principle illustrated in the life of King David. Uh, king David was king over Israel a couple of hundred years before uh, Hosea here. Uh, and King David, at the end of his life, he's commanded uh, by God to go and give an offering. An, an offering to God. And so he heads towards this field owned by a guy named Arana. And he, he comes to the field and um, basically Arana comes out meeting the king. The king's coming with a whole bunch of people. He's like, what's going on? He comes, he bows down at the face of the king. He says, oh, king, why are you here? King David says, well, I'm, I'm here to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. I'd like to buy your field as a place to do it. I'll buy your oxen and your sheep and we can, we can have this sacrifice. And Arana says, no, 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 king. Like, no way, you're the king. Let, let me just give it to you. You can have it for free. And, and then just offer sacrifices to God. But look at how King David responds. 2 Samuel 24. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. He's saying, if I'm offering a sacrifice to God that didn't cost me anything, it's not really a sacrifice. It's not really love shown to God because it didn't cost me anything. Real love costs. There's a sacrifice that had to be made. We know this with our friends, family, we feel loved when they sacrifice for us, when they give something up for us and for our benefit. We, we feel loved by them. And the same is true of God. We know the depth of God's love by what he was willing to sacrifice. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. He sacrificed. What? His only son. He gave it all. Gave it all. So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's what he wanted. He's saying, you know what? I'll give it all so you, you don't have to do it. I'll sacrifice everything so that you can be restored to relationship. Right? Hosea, he didn't go and say, Gomer, you need to get yourself out of slavery. Pay for yourself out of slavery, and then you can come and be my wife again. He says, I'm going. I'll pay the cost. I'll pay the sacrifice so that you can be my wife again. Even though you've betrayed me, you've been unfaithful. 
I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to give up everything. Why? Why would God do this for us? Why would God sacrifice so much for us? I think the answer is that God desperately wants you to experience the joy of knowing him. Gomer, sleeping around with all those different guys, ultimately wasn't good for her. What she needed was a husband, a husband that loved her, that would be faithful to her, that would be the best place for her to grow into the woman that God would want her to be. God sees us in our spiritual adultery, going after all these sinful things, worshiping other things in our hearts, and he says, that's not best for you. I'm going to give up everything so you can know me because that is the very best thing. I, I, I want you to be in relationship with me. Th- that's why I've done that. That's why I've given up everything. You can imagine, for a second, Gomer's point of view of this whole story. Uh, Gomer, you, you can imagine that deep down, she, you know, she's happy with her other man, I think deep down there's got to be something in her that just knows what I did wasn't right. You know, you can imagine her walking through the marketplace one day and she comes across Hosea and the three kids and she just kind of turns away. She just doesn't want to see it, doesn't want to think about it. She knows that deep down there's something wrong. Maybe even knows that, hey, I, I should go back, but how could I go back? How could I go back to all that I've done for him or to him? There'd no, be no way he'd want me back. One day Gomer finds out that, that Hosea's coming to buy her as a slave. She sees that he empties out his pocket and his barn for her. And she's like, oh no, now I'm going to get it. Now I'm going to be his slave. I'm going to go home and what is he going to do? He's going to make me wash the dishes, clean the house. Work hard. He's going to pay me back for all the hurt I've done to him. But instead, what does Hosea do? He comes, he brings her into the home. He takes the the rope off her hands. And he says, you will be faithful to me. And I promise I will be faithful to you. You will be my wife. He's restored her to this relationship that she doesn't deserve. At great cost to himself. That's what God has done for us. He has paid a great cost so that we can know and be with him. That's the second thing. God's love is sacrificial. The third and final thing that we see in our text is that God's love is transformative. God's love is transformative. Uh, Not that God's love changes, but that God's love changes us. Uh, Here in the text, in the the story, uh, we don't really know what happens to Gomer. Uh, We don't know if she's taken back and and everything works out between her and Hosea. We don't know if she cheats on him again. We don't know if they live happily ever after. We don't know. This is kind of the last little glimpse we get of Hosea and Gomer uh, for the rest of the book. But what we do know is what God promises is going to happen to his people. Israel, when he takes them back. 
It's there in verses 4 and 5. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household god, kind of referring to them going into exile, the Babylonians and Assyrians. There's going to be a time where they don't have these things. But then they're going to come back, return from the exile. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. There's going to be a change. They will leave one way and return another. They're going to come back different. God's promising that his people are going to actually be changed. They're going to be transformed. There's some discipline that's kind of happening there to his people. That's part of his love. We could spend a whole bunch of time talking about that. But what we see is that God's love for them wants what's best for them. He wants to see them transformed into the people that they should be, into all that he's calling them to be. And that's what real love always does. Real love doesn't just say, hey, I'm really happy where you're at. Real love always wants what's best for us, which often means that we need to transform, change for the better. It wants to see that happen in us. And this is important to see as we go through uh, the rest of the book of the Hosea. Because the rest of the book of Hosea, there's, there's going to be some hard sayings. There's going to be some judgment that, that God pronounces on his people, Israel, because of their disobedience. But we need to understand all of that in the context of God's love and care for them. That they would be transformed. That through this discipline that he is acting on them, they would actually come to be the people that he wants and knows that they can be. So God's love is transformative, not just for the people of Israel, but for us as well. For God's people now, God's love is the same. He, he does not just love us so that we can just go and abuse his love. Oh yeah, God's love is persistent. Great. I'm going to go keep sinning because he's going to keep loving me. It's not like that. He's saying, no, I love you because I want you to change. I want you to, to be transformed into who you should be. Into the holy people, the righteous people that you ought to be. Throughout the Bible, we, we see this, that God loves us for a purpose so that we might be changed, transformed. One of the examples of this is in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Uh, uh, Paul's writing to the, the, the Corinthians and he says, you're not your own for you were bought with a price. So you've been redeemed as a people, bought by Jesus' blood. You're his now. So go do what? So glorify God in your body. Live differently. Be transformed. Not that, not that we're uh, perfect. We still sin, but we're marked by a change. We're going to begin to seek God, to fear him. And that's what it means if we've actually received God's love, that it's going to transform us. In many ways, this passage is not really about us, though this passage is really all about God. It's all about God's love. But here's the thing. We're told as the people of God that our love for others is to be based on the kind of love that God has. Uh, Jesus says it really clearly in John uh, chapter 13. He's talking to his disciples before he's to be crucified and he tells them a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you 
you also are to love one another. Persistent love, sacrificial love, transformative love. That's how we're to love those around us. With the kind of love that God has given us, that's part of the transformational process, that we now be people who love in this way. There, there's so many areas of our life where we could really try to think this through, what it looks like in our work relationships, what it looks like with our kids, what it looks like in relationship uh, to, to our friends that we, that we hang out with on Saturdays. You get time to do that in your community groups, hopefully, of, of thinking through what does the love of God actually look like in my specific life. I just want to give one brief example and that is to husbands. Because the Bible is really clear to husbands what their love for their wife is supposed to look like. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, that's the kind of love we're supposed to have for our wives. A persistent love even when she hurts us, even when she does things that are kind of weird and wrong, we're still a lover. We're to sacrifice. We're to lay down our life. Christ is the example. It means that we have to make sacrifices for ourselves, husbands. That some of the things that we really like, we're going to need to let them go. Why? So that our wife can flourish. So that she can feel loved and cared for and that ultimately she'd be transformed. Right? That, she, that she would become the beautiful woman of God that we desire her to be. But it means that, that we need to love her like Christ. It's not our, our efforts in any way, it's Christ, but we serve as an example of what his love is like. See, the hope for all of us actually comes from this passage here in Ephesians 5. If we look at just the broader context for a second, the, the hope for all of us is that one day we're going to be transformed. That one day we're going to be transformed to be the bride of Christ, to, to be in, in holy splendor like, like we're supposed to. This is Ephesians 5, uh, all the way to verse 27. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the hope is that one day when Christ returns, we will all be like that. The, the, the transformation that has begun in part now will one day be complete. God's love is persistent. It's sacrificial. It's transformative. And when we try and grasp the love of God, it's kind of hard. There's so much there. There's a great hymn that talks about, you know, if the oceans were filled with ink, man, we, we, couldn't, we, couldn't, we would drain the ocean dry, just trying to write about God's love. We, we can't. We can't know it. Paul says it's a love that surpasses knowledge. But we know in part. And so let us, as a people, know as much as we can this great love that surpasses knowledge. That's my prayer for us, so I'll, let me pray for all of us together. Oh.
Oh, Lord Jesus, uh, we come to you as the one who has sacrificed himself for us. You, have, you are the great husband who, though we were committing adultery with other lesser things, you came and you sought us out. You sacrificed of yourself for us. You loved us with a love that for us is incomprehensible. We cannot fully grasp how much you have loved. Help us to know this love. I pray, whether we are, are stuck in sin, whether we don't know you truly yet, whether we've been walking with you for a while, Lord, let us know the love of Christ. Let us know it in our hearts deeply so that we would be transformed, so that we would be a people that reflect that love to one another. We ask this not for our sake, but we ask it for your sake, for your glory, so that your love would be displayed to all the watching world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.